0: On the job, with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach,
1: and my name is Sally Rugg.
0: How are you, Sally? I'm
1: good, mate. How are you?
0: Not too bad. It's been another edgy week where we live in Melbourne and in Victoria, as uh, we've seen protests and displays of anger and fury and skirting the edge of madness on the steps of Parliament House as protests have sprung up and uh, and all sorts of thing- nasty things have been said about Daniel Andrews and the Victorian State Government. Now, whatever your position on the uh, legislation that's before the Parliament, that's by the by, but, jeez, uh, this is taking us into new territory, isn't it, in terms of the way that our public discourse is, is run, and it just it's getting darker and more bitter.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right, and for folks not... Um, Following the minutiae of Victorian state parliaments, first of all, I just think you're amazing. Um, I just admire admire it. The short version is up until now only the chief health officer can declare a pandemic and make health rules. Um, And so this uh, legislation before parliament is basically saying that that power will now sit with um, the Premier and the government. Uh, is the like clumsy short version and it has just caused really uh, I would say like quite unprecedented explosions of angry protests on the streets of Melbourne. There have been these protests like every Saturday but because the bill is what passed the lower house of Victorian parliament uh, last week when you're listening to this. Yeah so people like protesters have been camping out the front of parliament and as you said, mate, um, putting any feelings on the bill aside because, you know, there have been like very, I don't know, organisations whose work I hold in very high esteem who have sort of flagged some concerns about it and that's been worked through. Anyway, it's a contentious bill. Putting all of that aside, I have found it quite remarkable seeing these protesters very cross about this bill because my understanding was until now that they didn't want, like, public health orders to be made by some bureaucrat, like...
0: That's exactly what I was thinking!
1: My understanding <laughs> of the... I mean, and it's... I, I wouldn't call it, you know, a coherent on mass list of de- demands, but the, the sort of, like, very genuinely held concerns that I have observed from people on Instagram or, you know, places where I've come across people who, you know, oppose pandemic restrictions. My understanding was is that they didn't want a bureaucrat to make these decisions and it should belong to, like, democracy and the people. And so, yeah, it's been a bit confusing <laughs> to wonder what the issue is. Yeah.
0: And it, it, it's the way the discourse is run as well has been particularly sharp and that's a polite way of putting it, which leads us into the conversation that we're going to have today with Van badham whose timing could not be better because – Van's book is called QAnon and on a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults and it looks at the way that the QAnon phenomena in particular and other conspiracy cults have coalesced and found a voice and a a community together which is manifesting itself in some of these protests, at least some of the elements of these protests are very much driven by all of that, and it's become a huge phenomena in our wider public culture. And uh, at times, Sally, I think we've been able to feel a bit of distance from it and look at events during the Trump era in the United States with a critical eye and thinking that hasn't happened here. I've never thought it couldn't, but it hasn't happened here yet. But it's quite clear that it has now.
1: Yeah, I think the temptation to think that this is something happening far away and, you know, in like crazy America it would be foolish, I think. Um, I mean, and Van is about to tell us all about how um, prevalent QAnon here is here in Australia. But I think as well, like, you know, whether it is QAnon, whether it is another conspiratorial belief, whether it is another iteration of medical disinformation or climate change disinformation or disinformation about minority communities or whatever it might be, like I think the lessons that we can learn from a phenomenon like, phenomenon like QAnon, like can and should be applied broadly.
0: Well, I spoke with Van Battam a little earlier on about her book. She's a wonderful journalist, writer. You've seen her on the television. She's an advocate. She's also a brilliant playwright in her as well. She's an extraordinary person and a very articulate spokesperson about her fabulous book. It's called QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults. Let's meet Van Batten. On the job, on Van, welcome to On The Job. It's so great to finally have you on. How are you?
2: Oh, Francis, it's been a big week, let me tell you. So I launched my book. Uh, I was on the Today Show with Carl Stefanovic. That was amazing. There was an article that came out about that appearance, that the Daily Mail published a denial from Carl Stefanovic that he was a shape-shifting lizard. I've had the most bizarre conversations about far-right conspiracy theories and the boneheads in Melbourne and, of course, had to be restrained by a taxi driver from getting out of said taxi and screaming at boneheads on the steps of Parliament House this week. So there's been colour and movement.
0: Tell us a little bit that moment. You're driving up Spring Street. You've got a busy day. Q and on and on has just been released. You see the colour movement and craziness of what's happening at at, from this uh, at uh, at Spring Street, and your instinct is to get out and have a crack. And you've obviously got a very calming cabbie there who just sort of (laughs) like took control. of
2: (laughs) I've got to give you the whole story. So I'm in the taxi and and talk politics with my taxi driver which generally happens to me because he's I've been making phone calls in the car and he's like oh are you a journalist and I'm like yeah and he goes oh so am I well I was back in Afghanistan and of course we have a conversation about the Afghanistan situation and what it's like to be a journalist there and you know we're having this big geopolitical conversation and we're actually driving up Burke Street because I'm going to like we're on our way to my hotel and I see the crowd on the steps Parliament House and the thing that struck me was the Gadsden flag. That's that yellow flag with a snake on it that says don't tread on me and it's actually from the American Revolutionary War. It's a really American flag that's been co opted by the American far right. And of course, I see the Trump flags and I just crack it. I'm like, these people are scumbags. If they want to, you know, be American, they should go and live there and see what it's like to live without Medicare and, you know, and get paid badly and the rest of it. I'm just absolutely losing it. And the further we came up, Burke Street, the angrier I was getting at the sight of these Gadsden flags. And I was like, let me out of the cab. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And my taxi driver, a journalist who is a veteran of 40 years in Afghanistan was like, no, no, calm down, calm down. <laughs> and had to stop me from getting out of the cab and giving them a piece of my mind, Francis. I was just so angry. And one of the things that set me off was in my book, QAnon and On, I tell the story of one of the people who died on January 6th in the Capitol riots in America. It was a young woman called Roseanne Boyland, who was a Q believer. And she was the one, there was infamous footage of her getting crushed in the crowd. She actually died of a drug overdose, they found out in the postmortem. And it's just, the whole story is incredibly sad. And she had one of those Gadsden flags. That's what she was marching under on January 6th. And I think... I I researched her story in such detail and and had so much sympathy for her family who had begged her not to go to the January 6th protest and she'd promised them she'd be all right and she never came home. I think it was just the sight of that yellow flag on the horizon. I was like, that's it. I'm done with these boneheads. I'm going to tell them what garbage they
0: are. That story, a microcosm of what has happened to so many people who have been seduced by conspiracy theories and have been radicalised in many ways by the cult of conspiracy theories. It's a subculture now. So let's talk a little bit about what you think has happened locally. We've not seen this before at this level, uh, this sort of fervour, the anger, the rituals that go with the QAnon cult and the far-right extremist cults like the mock hangings, all of that stuff that echoes what happened at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. So what's happening locally that has allowed this culture to seep into our own civic life? Because for so long we felt we were impervious to it. Maybe we were just being a little bit arrogant and just a little bit silly. Do you think that we could somehow escape it?
2: Well, Francis, there have been some cultural changes and there have been technological changes as well. I mean, the reality is, and I talk about this in the book, conspiracy theories have always been with us. In fact, the majority of people, whether they're left, right or indifferent, do believe in at least one conspiracy theory or are willing to entertain one, whether it's the moon landing or the lizard people or anything else. There's a percentage of the population who are very vulnerable to conspiratorial thinking. They're people who get overwhelmed by information and feel quite paralysed by it. And they're attracted to what the conspiracy theories offer, which is a simplistic good versus bad, light versus dark, them and us kind of narrative. That's quite simplifying and reassuring for them, especially in a world with the internet, which just gives you information, information, information that you're expected to sort your way through. It's very clarifying. So the QAnon mythos of, you know, evil elites running the world and torturing and eating innocent children under the streets, and that's what QAnon people believe. That's been with us since the Romans. That's 2,500 years old. It's a real bedrock of, like, Western conspiratorial thinking. The problem is that movements like QAnon and the other sort of conspiracy cults on the internet, whether that's your anti-5G people or your lizard people people or your moon landing people, the rainbows in hose pipes, you know there's a whole lot of different conspiracy thinking that goes on. The issue is that what's happened with the the technology of the internet is that bad faith political actors have seen these these conspiracy communities and gone well, we can mobilize these people. These people who are willing to buy into good versus like good versus evil, light, dark, heroes, villains kind of stuff, if we sort of study them and work out the key words that we can use to sort of animate them, we can manipulate them for political purposes. And that's really the interesting new transition that's taken place. It's not the first time in history this has happened and I'd like to remind everybody of a period called the 1930s where a lot of very old mythologies about, you know, an, an evil ethnic minority running the world that was untrue, by the way, um, supported by propaganda was used to mobilise various communities into, oh, uh, the worst horrific uh, genocidal crimes of all humanity. So, um, so we're sort of back in there, but the internet sort of supercharges everything and really sophisticated political operations exist to target these people. And I want to point out too that people who are vulnerable to conspiracy theories. It's not like a permanent class of people. There's not like a subset of the population who are always going to be vulnerable. Like depending on various social triggers, people have periods of feeling vulnerable where they become susceptible to this stuff for whatever reason in often quite individualised circumstances. But the issue that we have is that over the course of the pandemic, you had a lot of people who just lost control or lost a sense of control over their lives, who were overwhelmed by constantly changing, certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, information, about safety, about protocol, about science, what was the virus, where did it come from, all of these things. And you had some people who, quite frankly, just wigged out. And if you're in that state of vulnerability and somebody sends you a YouTube video going, hey, it's all because, you know, the mole people of Timbuktu are putting radioactive gold dust in the taps. That's why this is happening. If you're vulnerable, that might be something that you cling to, to give yourself a sense of, of clarity.
0: It's that sense of control that's really interesting here, isn't it? As you said, and I think it stems back to uh, as the world became more globalised and the economics of – neoliberalism have meant that people no longer have that certainty in their life in terms of secure jobs and uh, a connection to community that they do feel untethered and so therefore they are so much more vulnerable and susceptible to these ideas and my own thinking on this is as much as it stems back to the failure of uh, the institutions in our communities to deliver on their end of the social contract so things such as the Iraq war which was built on a massive lie and you can see you can see how that can be exploited as a conspiracy to line the pockets of Dick Cheney and Blackwater and, and Halliburton and all these huge uh, corporations that made out millions and billions of dollars out of it. You can see that the collapse with of the global financial crisis and, and the bailouts of the banks that the rich guys got away with it and people picked up the tab. Governments didn't protect their citizens. On and on it goes. People felt that there were conspiracies at play that dealt them out of the game, that you know, that they no longer needed to abide by the social contract. So such things such as Trumpism comes to light and it feels like the right way to go as a way of pushing back against that. So in a way, the institutions that we used to trust have opened the door for this stuff.
2: Oh, look, and it's, it's things like um, abuse scandals, child sexual abuse scandals. Epstein, in the Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, yeah. And the Catholic church and, you know, and the sex scandals that have taken place in Orthodox Jewish communities and Protestant congregations and, you know, lying evangelical pastors. And, and yeah, the Iraq war is a really big one. The thing that's really interesting, though, Francis, and this is which was one of the great discoveries when I was researching my book, is we have this idea of your sort of Trump-supporting Brexit voting, you know, Gadsden flag-wearing Parliament House Daniel Andrews-threatener as being some kind of oppressed working-class person who's been marginalised by globalisation and is in insecure work and is, you know, worried about that financial pressure. What we know about these people, what we know about your conspiracy theorising QAnon flag wavers is they're not working class and they're not from, you know, the lumpen proletariat, which is like the, the unemployed class. They're actually what some social scientists are calling the lumpen bourgeoisie. They tend to be middle class people. They tend to be small business owners. They tend to be hairdressers and doctors. And one of the most prominent QAnon conspiracy theorists in Australia was actually a practising psychiatrist uh, who was stripped off the, the register for some of the stuff he was posting. They're people who have a, like a pretty solid amount of social privilege and their issue and part of the, the thing that I found so interesting about the conspiracy cult movements was that they really wanted to play hero. Like they wanted to have a a sense of importance and be these sort of mavericks against the system. And you can see in the kind of language they use that they position themselves as freedom fighters and rebels and mavericks and whatever. And then they get into their hired cars and go back to the airport and fly home. It's something that we learned in the arrest records of people on January 6th in the United States The demographics that kept coming back were really fascinating because some of those people, like in America, wages are so low, working class people can't afford to fly down to Washington and protest for a couple of days, Like they don't have the legal entitlements that Australians do. They don't have the money, like they can't just make that happen. The people who were participating in those protests were the people who had the money to do so. They were staying at four-star hotels, literally getting up, having a hotel breakfast, going off to try and overthrow the government and then going back to the hotel. Like it's really interesting. And the sociology around it is an analysis of uh, what they call like a status anxiety with these people. These people who already have... You know, money. They usually own their own homes. They're quite likely to have a university education and be of independent means. But these are people who might have experienced some kind of interruption to their trajectory, where they've had a, a divorce, maybe child like a child support payment obliged of them. They might have faced bankruptcy or been bankrupt or had a failing business or been on the bad end of a, a legal decision that's disadvantaged them, and it causes them to become absolutely obsessed with this idea of maintaining a social privilege, that they're literally willing to march in the streets and and storm buildings in order to defend. It's really fascinating sociological stuff.
0: It really is, and we go deep into it in in the book, QAnon and On. Let's start, I guess, with the the headline act here, uh, QAnon, and and its antecedents, and, and when it first popped up, and why this conspiracy theory? What was it about QAnon or Q that caught fire in a way that you know? I mean, other conspiracy theories from chemtrails to whatever else, you know, they've got their followers and their and their ad- advocates. But this was a different beast. What's happened?
2: It, I go into a lot of detail in the book, and you get all of the details. But the the too long didn't read version is that in 2017, on a website called 4chan, which is this sort of infamous website where overwhelmingly posters are anonymous and it's got this sort of internal culture of people um saying the most outrageous things possible and and publishing the most outrageous pictures they can find and there's lots of porn and there's lots of like grossness and people taking photos of their bowel movements it's that kind of place like literally if if you shock me i will shock you twice as hard in 10 minutes this sort of culture was developing on fortune of people pretending to be high level insiders within government or the military or the cops or whatever. And it was, a, it was a game of, they called it laughing live action role play where you pretend and see how long you can sort of sustain a story about the, the secret information, you know, but it's a pretendy game and into this forum where you have people pretending they're CIA agents and FBI informers and, you know, all other kinds of things comes this this account that starts posting, um, pretending that, or insisting rather, that they are a Q clearance intelligence operative within the United States government and that this mysterious Q clearance means that they're privy to all of these secrets. And uh, they announced that Hillary Clinton, who was Donald Trump's uh, nemesis and opposing number in the 2016 presidential election in the United, election in the United States, that she was going to be arrested and sent to Guantanamo Bay and these military show trials were going to start and all these evildoers would be punished and whatever. And there's, like, ongoing mythology in parts of the internet that have accused Hillary Clinton of, like, frankly, impossible things, one of which was there was this internet mythology that she was participating in the torture of children under a Washington pizza restaurant, you know, and a guy went in there in 2016 with a gun and shot up the restaurant looking for this basement full of children and not only were the children but there was no basement like these are uh, innocuous things that the internet turns into these sort of crazy dark fairy tales of like folk villains and the rest of it so these posts appear on 4chan in 2017 sort of reviving this mythos and it just caught on it caught on for a number of reasons one there were like thousands and thousands of Russian government aligned bot accounts that started sharing this material. And there were various people who um, took the content from 4chan and made YouTube videos, you know, talking to their followings about who could this informer be. And these posts continued and these posts continued until just after the US election and told this sort of story of Donald Trump and his brave war against these, evil villains who were part of a satanic elite and torturing children and the rest of it with all these sort of oblique references and rhetorical questions and you know it it was all framed like a game and the way that these posts appeared sort of invited you to decode them and work out what they might mean and so it looked like you know the kind of a forerunner to the sort of QAnon thing was uh, another thing that happened on the internet which was a game called Cicada 3301, which like people who build puzzles had put together and had created this game by which an international community of like puzzle obsessives had to follow all of these sort of digital clues and decode various things using, you know, using sort of high level IT kind of stuff. And it was quite a challenging game that not everybody could play. The thing about QAnon was that it was sort of framed like that kind of game and all of these sort of puzzles and decode this and decode that. But there were no answers, like, and there was no round of exclusion. You know, you could be anybody and go, oh, this means this plane or this means, you know, Hillary Clinton was at these coordinates or this means whatever. So Q would say, you know, down the rabbit hole with Alice, who is Alice? Where is the hole? What does X mean? And this kind of nonsense But this community developed around it going, oh, I can interpret you know, what these clues mean and this must mean this and this must mean that. And it caught on like because it was sort of, it was participatory and it made the people who were sort of reading these posts at home part of this story. It made them feel like they were, you know, great detectives and code breakers and whatever. And it was sort of an extension of role playing apart from the fact that people who are engaging in this stuff took it really seriously. And when I say really seriously, we're now at a point that people who've been consuming this propaganda online for four or five years now, are taking it so seriously. They genuinely think there is an evil cabal. There are people who honestly believe that Hillary Clinton tortures children in restaurant basements, you know, like that That Donald Trump is not some kind of absolutely deranged egomaniac who became president of the United States. Like they think that he's, a, you know, they call him God Emperor Trump and think he's like the saviour of all of these children. And it is it is absolutely unhinged stuff.
0: How is it durable, though? Because so many times Q has come up empty. Trump being reinstated as president on a certain date doesn't happen. All of these moments that Q talks about being the moment when the Great Awakening, or whatever they call it, happens... It doesn't happen. And so, therefore, why aren't followers disappointed, disillusioned and feeling conned by it? Why did they turn up in Dallas a couple of weeks ago uh, and and wait for John F. Kennedy Jr., who's been dead 20 years, to make a reappearance at Dilly Plaza and announce that he's uh, Donald Trump's running mate in 2024 and then still uh, the, the cult of QAnon persists? How can it survive such obvious... And an and embarrassing failure.
2: Because they want it to be true. They want it to be true. It's like every cult ever. All those doomsday cults who will tell you the end of the world is happening in two weeks or six weeks or 12 months or whatever. I mean, they endure because it's the participation in the cult itself is what's important to these people, not the dates, not even the messiah. And this is the thing, like meeting the, the work that I did for the book where I interviewed cult experts and people who who study QAnon and this kind of stuff because I was really trying to understand it. But to someone like me, I'm like, what on earth is this? Like how, why would you believe this stuff? And it's because they want it to be true, Francis. And this is the problem. I mean you have people who have such a pathological hatred of Hillary Clinton. And this is sort of why this stuff took hold. Like they resent her because she's a woman and they resent her because she's a feminist and they resent her because she's pro choice and they resent her because she doesn't look like what they want power to look like and yet remains this highly competent highly intelligent person who frankly makes a lot of people feel small and this sort of hatred of her and this idea that if she can only be taken out of the political game or public life or whatever then, you know, these people who hate her will be all right and have a sense of stability and normalcy. So they just invest all of these energy into these myths. And the point is really the community that forms around them. So they can go, yeah, yeah, Hillary Clinton's going to be taken off to Gitmo. Yeah, yeah, Hillary Clinton's going to be gotten. Yeah, yeah. And they're all agreeing with one another as if this sort of force of agreement can make something that they want to be true, true. And that's what's really dangerous. And it's also why the prophecies don't matter. It's why they're not really interested in who Q is. I mean, Q could be literally anybody. Q could be my mum. You know, she's a bit of a practical jokester. Who knows? But the (laughs) the point is how these communities seize on this information, despite all the evidence that contradicts it, to, to make it true by sharing it with one another.
0: How close has QAnon got to power here in Australia? It's gotten very close, really, hasn't it? Because the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has a friend uh, who has uh, gone down that rabbit hole rather deep, and, uh, you know, it's rather frightening. And we saw a Four Corners Expo USA on on Tim Stewart, and you write about it in, in the book by speaking with his sister, just how deep he is into QAnon, and, and yet the Prime Minister uh, is causing him a mate. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's just, it's
2: extraordinary. And the guy's son has been on social media saying things like Malcolm Turnbull should be hanged, and yeah, that's the Prime Minister's mate. Photos of him with the Prime Minister—they were at, like at one another's weddings. Their wives are best friends, and this was a guy who Scott Morrison had looking after Currawilly House, the Prime Ministerial residence in Sydney, when Scott Morrison was in America. Like that's who he trusted to look after, and like a national building. And it's like, oh well, he's his friend. He probably means him no harm. Well, that's not really the point. The point is governments change. And when there's a, a Labor prime minister, which inevitably there will be, and some dude who believes in the deep state the cabal and Hillary Clinton torturing children, and has that light in his eyes, is running around with intimate knowledge of Curabilly House and its security processes and everything else, do Australians really feel like our democracy is, is safe in that context? Well, the answer is no. And that's how close QAnon got to power. There's a story in my book that talks about, you know, the, the influence Tim Stewart potentially had on a, on a speech that Scott Morrison gave about getting his ideas into the, the national record through the speaking voice of a prime minister. I mean, that's genuinely terrifying. And this is the thing.
0: So that's the story about him using the phrase ritual ritual sexual abuse, which is a common phrase that's used within QAnon and within conspiracy, which feeds into the idea of this conspiracy of powerful rich people from Hollywood and and Washington who have uh, a a, a pedophile ring in which they drink the blood of of the children that they abuse.
2: It's so silly. It's so hard to talk about it because it just seems so completely insane. But they genuinely, this is QAnon people genuinely believe that elites in politics and in Hollywood and everywhere else somehow find the time between all their gigs and appointments to run a global pedophile ring that snatches all of these children and then the children are tortured and drained of their blood, which celebrities then consume in order to keep themselves youthful. And it's like, no, it's a lot easier to just get plastic surgery, you know. And they use these crazy made-up figures. They insist that a million children go missing in America every year they don't. It's about a hundred children go missing in America every year. It's usually it's because of like being snatched by parents or family members. Like the actual numbers around um, trafficked children are, are completely different. And of course, the QAnon people insist that they're these great rescuers of children. Their interference and involvement has actually stopped child rescue operations in various circumstances. It's a nightmare. But it's this the power of this mythology and this conviction of its adherents that they are you know, great heroes and noble and good and on the side of light. And Tim Stewart, the Prime Minister's mate, is a really good example of what I was talking about before. Like, he's been a developer. Like, this is a comfortably well-off middle-class man who's got absolute access to power, drinks beer with the Prime Minister, minds the Prime Minister's house. Like, that guy is not an oppressed class. That is an extremely privileged individual for whom all of the wealth and power and connections in society are not enough. So is furnishing this mythology of himself as this, you know, great rescuer of children. It's the most narcissistic stuff imaginable.
0: The cult is always capable of organizing itself in a way that marketing is key, and it's one of the things that you know cults do really well, and QAnon does it well too. Because by co-opting seemingly universal wholesome phrases like save the children now if you say save the children you think yeah of course I'm going to save the children but it's used as a top of funnel experience as they'd say in marketing is it just to get you interested in their thoughts and and slowly they introduce the, the, the more crazy conspiratorial stuff and before you know it you're buying into it and we've seen these protests from QAnon supporters out the front of different events and buildings saying, save the children, save the children. If you didn't know where they were from, you would think these people are doing something that, that, that is God's work, so to speak. It's it's really insidious.
2: Oh, it is. It's really insidious. There's a theory that I talk about in the book. They published an extract in The Guardian the other day from the book. that talked about this particular phenomenon, which they called fusion paranoia. And it's when like different groups of conspiracy communities start sort of merging into a conspiracy moltron because they find that they've got shared values. And in Australia, like, the way that QAnon got into the public conversation was through the wellness community because you had people who who were anti-vaxxers. And the actual proportion of anti-vaxxers in the community is measured at around 2%. Like, it's a tiny, tiny proportion of the population. But 2% of people who were like, yeah, I don't trust big pharma, I don't want these chemicals in my body, you know, I don't trust these institutions. They found a fusion paranoia with people who were like, Yeah, yeah, and government are not doing anything about stolen children. I don't, I don't trust the government. There are children under the streets of Washington who are being eaten by Hillary Clinton, baby monster or whatever. And these sort of narratives start overlapping in your 5G crowd going, I don't want the evil 5G brainwave juju in my serial or whatever, and they all start meeting up online. And of course, there are operatives whose job is to link those groups together, like people who are trying to form these communities. And of course, when you get a group of people who are willing to believe things that are absolutely not true, like that the vaccine is evil or five G towers are controlled by Bill Gates and are there to implant microchips in your brain or whatever. But these these things are absolutely not true. They're easily disprovable. The thing is that if you can get somebody to latch onto that as a belief system, you can convince those people to believe anything. And that's where your Nazis, if we know that their ideas led to a devastating war in Europe that killed millions and millions and millions of people. And so saying, hey, I'm a Nazi and I believe in racial genocide, it's not, it's not a really easy recruitment pitch but what is an easy recruitment pitch is going, yeah, yeah, I share your belief that vaccines are evil. I share your belief that Bill Gates is up to something with 5G towers. I share your belief that there are lizard people amongst us. And you want to know something? I bet Jews are involved in all of them. And that's the kind of political transition that goes on. And, you know, a lot of people who fall into these paths they're people who wouldn't think of themselves as racist. They're probably not actually racist. They probably don't police their lives or their political beliefs on the basis of people's like genetic identities. But they're people who might have a trigger issue around something that connects to a paranoia, a sense of displacement, a, a desperate need to, you know, believe in something or be part of a cause or think of themselves as a hero or whatever. And then the deeper they go in, they there are plenty of opportunistic political actors who are willing to say, yeah, the solution to all your problems, this feeling of disquiet, is because the world is run by this person or that person or whatever. I mean, QAnon people think that the Pope is evil and have this whole, there's this big anti-Catholic strain that goes through it as well. They use all of these ancient anti-Semitic myths that have been used to like murder and persecute Jewish people for centuries. Like it's all in there. But the, 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 the pitch that they make is about you know this, this cabal of elites and the rest of it, and that's how they get you in. And that's the, the radicalisation chain that people are involved in.
0: It's a great book, Van. Congratulations on it. It must have been punishing and absorbing and, and totally obsessive to write because it is just such extraordinary material that you've come across. Just to finish... But people, we all probably know someone who's flirted with it or is, you know, is probably susceptible to it or has indeed bought in completely to a QAnon or uh, similar sorts of conspiracies and cults. Is there a way back? And is our role as people who uh, are trying to push back against this to be tolerant and understanding uh, when our instinct might be to throw our hands up and tell people to go jump? They must be crazy. People do come
2: back. I mean, even after the Second World War, there were people who woke up to themselves and went, what did I just spend the past 10 years of my life doing? I was literally defending fascism. I mean, there are people who recant. That does happen. But we also know because there are people who have very publicly recanted their QAnon beliefs and have talked about it to the media. And I I follow a lot of their stories in the book. These people are on sort of lifelong apology tours for getting involved in this stuff. But people do come back as they come back from cults if you keep contact alive with them. I go into a lot of detail in the book about sort of how to deal with the phenomenon of a family member who goes down the rabbit hole or a, another loved one, you know, because it is really tempting to just argue logic. And the thing is, anybody who wants to believe Hillary Clinton eats babies under a Washington pizza restaurant, logic is not their dominant value at mm. the time. You can't out-argue them. What you can do is re-socialise them away from the cult or remind them of happy shared memories Go places, talk to them, engage, go bowling, play basketball. You know, a, a lot of the reason people fall into these communities is they're looking for a community. They're mm. looking for ways to engage. And now that lockdowns are easing and society's getting a bit back to normal, you know, we can, we can rebuild our social communities and that's sort of how you, you bring people back. I mean, it's very tempting to go, you're dead to me, I can't believe you're going on with this stuff. But if we're trying to, like, I make a distinction between the shepherds and the sheep. You know, the sheep are the people who fall down the rabbit hole and start imbibing all these theories. Who are the people you love who you're trying to get back? The shepherds are a, a different story. Like, that's an, that's an organised community of, like I said, right-wing, bad-faith political actors who are trying to mobilise these sheep communities to do their bidding in, in you know, various forms of creating chaos, attacking Daniel Andrews, being a propaganda army. I mean, there was an article in The Age Today that I'm sure people saw about a guy who's been arrested for encouraging people to get guns and shoot the Premier. Like, that's, that's a process of political radicalisation. And thank God that guy has been arrested and I hope there are many, many more arrests. But that's where the sheep end up unless people try and, and and keep contact alive with them, which is really hard to do, but is really important because they can come back and giving people an opportunity to wake up to themselves when the distress has passed and go, oh, my God, what was I doing? What was I thinking? What did I get myself involved in? That's really important. At the same time, if somebody is marching down a street with people who are carrying a noose, wearing T-shirts with swastikas on them and threatening to kill the Premier, that person has crossed a line. Like, you know, there's a great German saying that if you have 10 people at dinner with one Nazi, you have 11 Nazis. And I sort of trust their judgment on that front, historically, frankly. And if you're standing next to someone with a swastika in the crowd, you might as well be wearing that swastika. And that's something we've got to be really prepared to accept is that there may be people who have already been radicalised to the point where they're complicit in what Nazis and fascists are doing. And by that stage, we've got to look at it as a social, political and legal problem that there, there needs to be social, political and legal consequences for.
0: It's a great book, Van. Congratulations. It's a mighty achievement and it's really, really important at this moment. And uh, I urge everybody to uh, get their head inside this book, QAnon and On a Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults by the wonderful, the brilliant, the fearless Van Bannam. Van, thank you so much.
2: Oh, Francis, it's, it's such an it's it's such an important thing, and I'm just I'm so glad to be part of a of a movement of people, you know, like you, like my union comrades, who are like, yeah, this stuff is bad. Let's do something about it. Is really comforting. Like I spent so many months down the rabbit hole with these people, just losing your faith in humanity. Frankly, like when you're immersed in it, and you're like, how could this be happening? And then you just see the community of like of solidarity and, you know, support and just a more optimistic vision of what, what society can be. And it's a balm. Let me tell you, man, it's a balm. And thank you for coming to my book launch. You're a legend.
0: Thank you, mate. We'll speak to you soon. Bye. Van Batten there, QAnon and on, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults and it's already a bestseller. Like I was at the book launch seller the other night and they were flying off the table. In terms of a topic that people are thirsty for the knowledge on, uh, this is right in the sweet spot.
1: Mm, yeah, a really timely, timely investigation and expose and also what a week to launch it in. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on a copy.
0: Good to talk to you Sally, don't forget we can follow you at Sally Rug on the socials, remind people about the campaign that you are currently running for a, <laughs> r- a Royal Commission into the Murdoch Empire, which is uh, supported very much by this podcast, uh, remind people how they can find out more about it.
1: Thanks mate, yeah, um, if you want to find out more about the campaign um, for a Royal Commission into Media Diversity in Australia, we're not talking about QAnon explicitly in that campaign, but in terms of the mainstream media, so to speak, ensuring that that is diverse and accountable, and you know, that the, the news publications are part of a, a large race to the top, and who can report you know, the best stories rather than built upon lazy monopolies where, you know, misinformation can just be syndicated out across the regions and states. We'd love to have you on board the campaign. So the website is afmrc.org.au. And you can find us on social media as well.
0: And we will catch you next week on the job. Don't forget, you can send us an email anytime with a story, idea, comment, observation, podcast at protonmail.com. And we'll catch you on the next edition of On The Job. See you, Sally.
1: Bye. Bye. I grand 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 the job.